Good evening to our colleagues in India. Good morning to our colleagues in the US and perhaps in other places. I am Steve Simpson. I am the president of the American College of Chest Physicians, also known as CHEST. And we are pleased to be able to bring you this webinar this morning with several experts, uh, many of them Indian themselves, who are working here in the United States in, in hopes of being of assistance to you, those of you who are our CHEST members. Of course, we want to help you, but we are open to anyone who got the link and has tuned in, and we're happy that you are here. We're all aware at CHEST that there is a major crisis taking place in India. Some of our speakers have experienced crises uh, themselves in New York City, and I'm sure you heard about those last year. Um, we wanted to be of assistance to you, and I want to say we appreciate those of you who are members of CHEST in India. India happens to be outside of the US, our largest contingent of members of CHEST, and we're proud uh, to have you, and we are Please to, we hope, be of assistance to you. I'm going to hand over to our main host for this event, who is Sai Haranath. Sai is the chair of CHEST's Council of Global Governors and is an intensivist in Hyderabad himself. Sai. Thank you, Steve. Thank you again to CHEST for organizing this webinar at very short notice. Uh, I completely understand the pressure of time for everybody. I'm glad that some of you have been able to join in. It's kind of prime time, dinner time, travel time in India right now, but this was probably one of the most convenient times for a global time zone. So thank you again for taking the effort to join into this meeting. So I run the, uh, the pulmonary critical care department at the Apollo Hospitals in Hyderabad, India, and we put together a panel today of experts in various areas, and we'll be introducing them very shortly. And what the goal of this webinar is to try to go get very practical tips that you can use right away in terms of conserving oxygen, being able to manage patients in ICU that is stressed with resources, and also figuring out what's the next steps based on the experience that some of the other physicians here have already gone through. So I'm going to, uh, so I, I do a couple of things. I do pulmonology, I do critical care, but I also do remote care for patients in the US and in India. And one of the things we've realized is the knowledge is all that it takes to change outcomes. So you don't have to physically be somewhere. If you can actually learn some points, you can perhaps help your colleagues in other places who are not watching the webinar today, but you can conserve oxygen. I've seen this as a very real problem. Some of my colleagues and friends in India actually have small hospitals themselves, and they've been really struggling because of the amount of oxygen required in some situations. The positions have improved a little bit, but at the same time, the challenge has not ended. We are also hearing reports that the disease is now moving from urban to perhaps rural areas, and the challenges will continue to be there. So I'm going to, uh, we have, have received several questions from many of you in terms of uh, the topics, the themes for the webinar. And if you were to kind of highlight the main questions that people have asked, one of them has been about oxygen conservation. The other big area has been whether the vaccines are working, are they actually handling the variants? And the third big question has been in terms of staffing and how do we actually manage to prevent uh, people from dying in ICUs when you have staff resource and uh, the crunch that's going on. So I'm going to start off by 
addressing a really quick question and then uh, kind of go down the line here. And I'm going to direct this directly to Dr. Kalpalata Guntapali. Dr. Guntapali has been a former president of CHEST and a very vocal person who's been working with India and America in really enhancing primary and critical care for several decades now. Dr. Guntapali, if you could just briefly introduce yourself and tell the audience uh, what you do and if you could kind of touch about a big picture view on what you've been seeing and hearing from all your friends and trainees around the world. Uh, thank you, Sai, and um, welcome all of you. And uh, my heart really goes out to uh, what's going on in India and hats off to all of you for being in the front lines. Um, you know, we have experienced this uh, last year. We've had large uh, surges in uh, July and August. Right now, it's kind of plateaued to maybe two or three admissions um, a day into the ICU. Um, I am a professor at Baylor College of Medicine, and uh, I run the medical ICU at one of the Baylor uh, hospitals. Um, what I have been hearing mostly from India is, uh, um, I think there's, uh, there are guidelines by, um, by the Indian institutions. However, there seems to be a lot of confusion and there is a lot of polypharmacy and uh, attraction for very high-end uh, medications that, in my opinion, may or may not be uh, the right thing in the beginning for a majority of the patients. I would just leave it at that. And I know I think we need to keep it simple. That is applicable to most of the patients. So if you don't mind, I'm going to hop back in for a second just to tell our listeners if you use the chat function on your Zoom, you can type in questions during the course of this conversation. I forgot to say that before. Sorry, sir. Perfect. Thank you, Steve. And also, uh, we'll be putting in links on the uh, chat room because there's several chest resources out there which are very simple infographics. You can print these out. Put it up in your ICU if you want, because they are like step-by-step -step practical approaches to things like proning, things like managing ARDS. Uh, several of those are already there, and, and we'll be going through those. So thank you, Dr. Guntapali, for that uh, quick overview. I'm going to invite, uh, Ms. let's see right here, Dr. Uh, Vikram Mukherjee, who's at Bellevue. Vikram, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us very briefly what you went through last year and kind of kind of set the tone on which direction we go next. Thank you. Uh, sure. Thank you, Sai, and thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, my name is Vikram Mukherjee. I'm an intensive care physician out of Bellevue Hospital. Um, uh, I was born and brought up in Calcutta and did my medical school training in Armed Forces Medical College in Pune. So India is very much home uh, to me, though I spent the last 10 years or so in the U.S. And uh, I'm hoping that, you know, what you are going through now in India is what we went through uh, last year in March and April. So I'm hoping that we can talk about, discuss the lessons we learned here last year so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel uh, back home over the next hour or so. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Vikramji. Uh, and Ritwik, uh, do you want to please introduce yourself and tell us what you do and where you're at and your theme for today? Sure. Uh, so uh, thank you for inviting me and hello colleagues over at India. I'm Ritwik Agarwal. Um, I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine too, uh, along with Dr. Guntupali. And, you know, we have gone through this phase of, uh, in March over at Houston as well. I, I treat veterans here at VA, so relatively sicker population. Um, but now our numbers have plateaued a bit. Last year, we did this large trial uh, on proning, and we have gained a lot of experience. The trial is coming out soon. Um, um, and Dr. Simpson was also a co-author, that is, is a, a participant of the study. 
Um, and we have learned a lot of experience on proning, and I can share some of the experiences with you. Uh, the study is not published, so I cannot share the data, but I can share my personal experiences, which I think are quite valuable in terms of uh, preserving the resources. Thank you, Dr. Agarwal from Ritwik. And uh, last but not least, uh, Richard Branson is our respiratory from the University of Cincinnati. Uh, Richard, do you want to please introduce yourself and tell us the, I think, the most crucial things we're going to be talking about today? Sure. I'm Rich Branson. I'm a respiratory therapist. I'm a professor in the College of Medicine at the University of Cincinnati in the Division of Trauma and Critical Care, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Respiratory Care. And most of my work has been done with ventilators in the Strategic National Stockpile and methods of conserving oxygen and understanding your oxygen system in a disaster. Great. And I'm going to jump right into Richard back again. So, Richard, so you've heard the news, you've seen the news items, and, you know, unfortunately, it's not hype. Still, people have had oxygen crunches. There has been a depletion of resources. There's been a scrambling to reposition oxygen resources. So are there three simple things you would advise the listeners today, and perhaps the people who will be watching the recording later, on in an ICU setting, you have oxygen running out, what would you do to try to conserve it? Simple measures. So I think the, the simplest and not only um, a, a efficacious way to reduce oxygen use, but also improve care patients is to target saturations in the 92 to 94% range or even lower. You know, the, the original Arjnet Arma study shot for an O2 sat of between 88 and 94%. And um, if I can... We, can I share my screen for a second? We can try that. Uh, Let's see. Can you see that? Yeah, we can see it. Go ahead. So this is from a presentation by Francois Lelouch that he did recently for the Open Critical Care Group. And um, I don't know if, if you look here, this is the critical part over here to the right. The just by reducing the O2 sat target from 95 to 93%, there was a 50% reduction in oxygen utilization. And I think that's really important. Um, of all the things that we do um, related to, um, let me see if I can get out of that now, Encho. Of all the things that we do, that's one of the simplest things that we can do. And um, now let me show you. We have an, an infographic that we just developed at CHEST with Ryan Maves. So there, aside from that, obviously using the, um, the liquid oxygen systems, if you have them, using a lower oxygen target, you can place a mask over a nasal cannula to act as an additional reservoir that seems to be have some advantage. You can share oxygen between patients. And probably another, a very simple things, um, ventilators, anesthesia machines, Oxygen flow meters that aren't in use should be off and ideally unplugged. A lot of ventilators, especially anesthesia machines, have a safety in them so that you would never actually connect a patient and not have oxygen. So they'll run one or two liters a minute all night long. And if you have 10 or 15 anesthesia machines, that's, that's an important issue. But I think in the ICU, conservative oxygen saturation. And I think when you look at it, you have to think the device that uses the most oxygen is a high-flow nasal cannula, followed by non-invasive ventilation where a leak really increases oxygen consumption, and then mechanical ventilation. I don't think that people appreciate that. Um, mechanical ventilator typically uses far less oxygen than high-flow nasal cannula. Now, I'm not suggesting you ventilate people who don't need to be ventilated, 
but as you're going along that continuum of care um, and you have to understand your oxygen system, oxygen systems are built by engineers who say we have a thousand bed hospital and there's five ICUs and they're going to be so many beds. So the pipes that go to the ICUs are two inches in diameter to allow the flow, but the piping for the oxygen that goes to the third floor where you usually keep the postpartum patients who are rarely on oxygen are third the size or less. So if you try to surge into that area, there, there's not enough flow to meet the demands of high flow nasal cannula or in some cases, mechanical ventilation, mechanical ventilation at high minute volumes. Um, but I think, sorry, I'm taking too much, but conservative oxygen saturation, unplug things that aren't in use and you know, try to avoid leaks with high flow nasal cannula um, and reduce the oxygen flow as required. Yeah. Rich, That's great, Richard. And uh, Steve, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Rich, I don't think you can spend too much time on that because this is obviously oxygen is something that our patients can't live without. And so we need to preserve it for as many as we can. I wanted to point out, Cy, that this, this um, infographic is available at one of the URLs that I have posted in the chat. There are several URLs that are of use to those of us who are managing patients with COVID-19, and this is one of them. So you can find them there. Perfect. Thank you, Steve. I was going to go back to Richard and ask one more question about the mask or the high-flow nasal cannula. We were chatting before the webinar started, and uh, we have several physicians actually use it. Uh, what's your comments on that, Richard? So, you know, when you use, think about the typical transition of oxygen up the stream, right? So a, a normal oxygen cannula with no heated humidification usually goes from one to six liters a minute. And then you switch to a simple mask, which is usually six liters a minute. And the idea there is that six liters a minute, that additional dead space, it acts as a reservoir to increase the amount of oxygen delivered to the patient, but it also collects exhaled CO2. So generally you think of a, a flow greater than six liters a minute with the mask, and then you move to the rebreathing mask that has the bag hanging on the bottom, and then perhaps the high flow nasal cannula. But um, I would think you'd want to be careful. You don't want to run the oxygen flow with the cannula so low that you are having the patient rebreathe some CO2 and then um, creating issues with um, stimulating their drive when they're already having trouble and are already short yeah. of breath. Perfect. That's great. So I'm going to go back to Richard later. Uh, hopefully we have time on two other areas. One is going to be just as a trailer about the national stockpile and dealing with large scale issues and about the training of RTs. So kind of those are the two themes we'll touch on a little bit. Uh, Dr. Kuntapali, can you tell us, you, I know you're doing a lot of work in the India-US uh, collaborative efforts. Can you want to touch on what do you think has been the most useful in terms of what you've done in the last couple of weeks? And what advice would you give for people who are watching us in the United States who want to actually help out and help their colleagues in India? What would you suggest they do? We have been working in uh, three areas. I've um, invited um, through um, a WhatsApp group, um, pulmonologists or people in our specialty or related specialties to um, to, to be part of a database that we can use. And uh, one of the things we have been, we have had requests is from various 
medical schools and government hospitals and various organizations to answer the questions because most of the senior physicians as well as specialists have been very busy taking care of patients on the ground. And there are many people who have who are not experienced and who are on front lines, as you know. So to answer their questions, um, we have had requests from various places and we have a group of uh, almost 100 uh, Indian origin uh, pulmonary critical care physicians that we have uh, that have volunteered their time and we have you know their availability and we are coordinating with that almost on two or three different platforms uh, so that is one thing second thing is we have realized uh, that uh, just by asking the patients uh, in a large practice just by sending an email to donate any equipment like CPAP, BiPAP that's sitting on the shelf. Uh, people have been extremely generous. For example, one practice has generated 300 uh, units uh, that uh, only a small percentage were thrown out, but rest of them were cleaned, checked, and then uh, they'll be shipped. So we have requested all of these people on our database to request their patients. And there is a way of uh, shipping it without any cost to the patient or to the doctor. So that has been done. And we have uh, flights that will uh, take them. It won't be you know, snail uh, way of shipping. There are flights, Indian Air Force and various others that have been uh, helping to move these in uh, with several tons capacity to move these. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the doctors want to go there and work. Those numbers are kind of small. But I have some people who are ready to ready and willing to go there and actually help. Um, there are three or four organizations I have been coordinating and helping. And most of the times uh, the requests have been for oxygen concentrators, which makes sense, although it can only help one patient at a time. Uh, I have uh, been in touch with some organizations who are non-medical people, but they are helping by taking calls almost like some of them are taking 30,000 calls from the public and uh, giving, uh, checking their oxygen saturation, actually taking the oxygen concentrated to their homes. So we've been kind of uh, advising and, and talking to them. Um, so those are some of the uh, things we have been uh, doing it. And if there's any interest in any of these services, um, the other thing is I've helped few hospitals to uh, get oxygen generating uh, plants, which I feel is a kind of a more or less a permanent uh, solution. Uh, although they're more expensive, it may be something alumni groups, medical school alumni groups need to consider. And already we've, I've helped with two general hospitals um, in the South area, but others are uh, you know, actually coming forward to do that. So it may take maybe six to eight weeks to install it, but I think the need is going to stay. You're right. I mean, so I think that the need is absolutely not going to go away. The volumes are so many. Uh, I mean, if you just look at it, it's about 20 million plus right now who need to go through the COVID phases of two weeks at least, and some of them will obviously need advanced care. So Vikram, if you want to comment on your Bellevue experience, so just tell us uh, in about a minute or so, the worst day you had last year when you had these patients all over the place, what were you thinking? How did you actually manage that? Uh, great. Uh, thanks. Um, hey, so, you know, uh, back, back almost a year or so ago, our before COVID happened, our uh, usual medical ICU census is around 12 to 14 ICU patients. And at the peak of our COVID surge, we were handling 120 COVID ARDS patients and all of that. They were very sick, as you can imagine, advanced ARDS. We were the ECMO referral center for our system. So we were 
um, engaging and attracting a lot of patients who had nowhere else to go to. Uh, but as we you know, navigated our way through that, uh, we, felt, we realized very quickly that it wasn't ventilators or ICU beds or even oxygen supply that was our Achilles heel. It was staffing. And uh, a bed uh, is just as good uh, as empty if you don't have a physician and a nurse staffing that bed. Uh, so I would uh, reckon to my Indian colleagues is that uh, and, uh, focus not only on your beds and your oxygen supplies and your ventilators, but also make sure that you have a staff, a workforce that is capable enough to provide care. Um, and uh, a couple of things that might lend itself well to uh, home is, is that this is a time that everyone should concentrate on an inpatient staffing plan, if possible, ambulatory cares, outpatient clinics, ORs, all of those should be closed down or diverted so that the staff, along with the ventilators and the space, can come back to provide care to med surge floors to an inpatient critical care. And we had a philosophy that, you know, we were had having to handle such a huge volume of patients at that time that we were saying no, we were not saying no to anybody. If you're an orthopedic uh, attending who's never worked in an ICU, come and help prone our patients. If you are a neurosurgeon, you're used to back surgery, come help prone our patients. If you are um, uh, a dermatology resident, come work as an intern uh, in our ICU. So we were filling in as many holes as we could with non-traditional ICU staff. And along with that, I think one of the things that we realized maybe a little too late is that healthcare worker wellness and burnout. Uh, if you don't have a healthy workforce, you don't have a well uh, adopted workforce. So trying to start addressing that, you'll have, unfortunately, you'll have your co-physicians, your co-nurses, your colleagues falling sick, sometimes even dying. And to have a healthy workforce fighting through that should be something that we should address early on. Well, that, that's great to hear, Rick McCrum. Thank you so much. That's very meaningful advice. Steve, I want to kind of ask you here, you know, uh, I'm going to get to Ritwik in a second, but Steve, what do you think CHEST is doing right now? You just want to share with people about the COVID resources. I understand there's an entire task force that's been doing a whole bunch of uh, things which would be applicable in a setting like this. Um, yes, there is. We set up a task force in March of last year site to, uh, that meets weekly, continues to meet weekly, and produces a whole lot of different content that's related to the COVID outbreak. Some of it is infographics as what you've seen. Some of it is, is um, uh, blog posts that are like more than your usual blog. They're often, they're, they're evidence-based blogs, so to speak. Um, we have webinars that have taken place weekly. And I'm going to share my screen very briefly here and just show you. This is the URL here. I have also put it in the chat. This is the COVID-19 Resource Center, and the way you get to it if you just go to Chestnut is get to guidelines and resources in COVID-19. Um, and there's a wealth of resources here, although, as, a, as I said. We have at times run a clinician matching network. We did that in the U.S., uh, where U.S. licensing and Indian licensing obviously are are different. Um, we have pieces from the journal, journal clubs, and we have all sorts of on-demand uh, e-learning, including these weekly webinars. Yeah, so this has been going on since March of 2020. So there's a lot, a lot of resources there. Um, and a lot of folks have spoken to us during the actual crisis in New York City. So we, we 
do have additional experiences that are similar to what you're facing now that you can uh, you can uh, use as a resource. Perfect. Thank Thanks. you so much. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm just going to give a five seconds. Anybody want to jump in before I go to Ritwick? Any comments on what we've talked so far? All right, Ritwick. Okay, Dr. Kuntabali, go ahead, please. No, um, I just wanted to um, expand on what, what Dr. Mukherjee said is to utilize the resources in uh, some, for us, we had so many uh, patients who needed to be prone on ventilator that we could not do it with the nurses and, and physicians. And we used uh, the operating room that was closed, their proning teams to come. And at one point we even used uh, like janitorial services or transportation services to come and help us. There can be one bedside nurse, but all others can be uh, as helpful because you need a lot of people to help you. Absolutely. So in our hospital, at Apollo Hospitals, for example, uh, we have a, like a couple of things we're doing is one is sift through the evidence and we have come up with guidelines, which is in the 40th edition now. So we have been, you know, looking at the data and, you know, sieving it out and so make sure it's up to date. The second thing is we have an innovation where we have uh, oxygen rounds, somebody just making walking and seeing, making sure that the SATs are not more than, you know, like 95, 96, and if it is kind of tweaking it down. And the third thing is, of course, uh, we kind of communicate through our network in terms of uh, figuring out which patients need to be transferred where, because honestly, we're getting ECMO requests. I mean, we have 25 plus ECMOs running in my city in Hyderabad right now, and there's about 120 plus patients on a waiting list. And these are all people fitting ECMO criteria. They're not just you know, bogus cases which they're looking at ECMO, but these are all people who actually need it. So those, I mean, so we're looking at the extreme of people needing ECMO, we're looking at the extreme of people needing oxygen. So it is a gigantic crisis and everything that's being done, every little bit does count. And I'm sure all of you have heard the starfish story. You can Google that. And, you know, every starfish you can help makes a difference. So I think whatever we're doing today is obviously going to be of much help. So Ritwik, I'm going to request you to tell us briefly, what are the top three things you should and should not do when you're proning somebody? based on your extensive experience? All right, that's actually a very good question. And thank you for uh, giving me that question. So, you know, in our trial, we have enrolled a lot of patients and we learned a lot of uh, tips, so to speak, from patients themselves. Number one, a lot of patients who feel that they can, they can prone, uh, they are ultimately not able to prone as well. So compliance rate is not that great. Just telling the patients a simple rule that, okay, go ahead, go to your home, lay down on your, on your bed um, in the prone position as long as you can, that is just not sufficient. You need to give very concrete guidelines is do this for a short duration, maybe 30 minutes, two hours, and change position. You really need to give them a lot. And even with that much uh, motivations, we found that the patients are really not doing it for more than six hours. Uh, if you think of the Proceva trial and some of the larger trials where we, we prone patients for ARDS patients, those patients were prone up to 16 hours a day. And then we started noticing those uh, VQ mismatch uh, differences. So think of proning as a way to, uh, as a way to add additional oxygen, if I may. So if, if you prone a patient, that patient will require less oxygen because you are changing the physiology of the lungs. So if, you are, if the patient is not proning, proning long enough, they are going to not get the whole benefit and they'll say proning doesn't work. So 
the big question is to have them very concrete way and continue motivation. I happen to uh, help a number of patients in India too who, who have seen their physicians and were on treatment, but at home they were not able to go frequently to the hospital, mostly at home patients. And these were elderly patients, most of them more than 65. And I would say it's anecdotal and of about 15, 20 patients. These patients had very uh, strong social support as we see in India. And they were family members. And I would tell them exactly, I had a spreadsheet which I made and I sent them a spreadsheet and the families were on top of it. They were not able to access oxygen they were managing the patient's home. Most of them actually met the criteria of outpatient management. And for my 15, 20 patients, none of them worsened. Actually, all of them prone for up to, um, I would say, at least seven to eight hours uh, during 24 hours. And none of them required oxygen. Most of them have sats in low 80s, I mean, high 80s, and they improved ultimately. So I think proning works, but there's a bigger challenge that a lot of patients are not able to be compliant with it. And we have to keep that in mind. Number two is proning comes with a lot of barriers. So if you have a patient in ICU who is intubated, sedated, paralyzed, you can prone them and that's not a problem. But when a patient is awake, proning comes with other issues. So our patients are elderly, they have arthritis, just turning over a patient with Parkinson's disease. For him, just from changing position with all the stiffness was extremely difficult. Patients now are obese, they have big bare bellies, so they cannot actually lie uh, on their belly. Uh, and there are a lot of barriers to proning. Some people feel that when they eat food, uh, they feel like they have to uh, cause them gurgling and so forth. So proning is actually not for everybody uh, unless they are extremely motivated. Um, I think those are some of the main lessons which I learned, but I would say that proning tends to improve the oxygenation, at least in short term, uh, if done properly. Thank you, Ritwik. So that was a very good summary of, you know, your practical experience. So we're going to switch gears slightly and go a little bigger picture. Vikram, are you still in touch with your um, uh, AFMC colleagues, Armed Forces colleagues? Yes, very much so. So I'm just curious. Uh, I know the military has done a ton of stuff in India right now. They've set up field hospitals and doing many things. And I'm going to ask uh, Richard also this question at the same time. So the, the national stockpile of ventilators that the U.S. has, can you briefly give us just an overview of what was the thinking that went into doing something like that? And uh, Vikram, what have you heard from your colleagues who are still in the armed forces in terms of what's happening in terms of the ventilators and supply and oxygen logistics supply chain? So you can both kind of have a chat about this two-country approach. Great. Richard, do you want to go with the SNS first and then follow? Sure. So... You know, back in 2013, we had the task force on mass casualty care and published all the papers in chest and included a table that listed the requirements for a ventilator to be used in mass casualty respiratory failure. And when the spring, when New York was overwhelmed and um, the governor said he needed 40,000 ventilators and the administration it had a different number. Um, the next thing we know, somebody made the decision they were going to buy 200,000 ventilators. Um, we were able to get people to get, get them to stop at 130,000 or so. Um, but there were only 20,000 that were ever um, sent out to hospitals in the U.S. Um, so now, unfortunately, we have quite a variety of 
ventilators in the stockpile. We have an ICU ventilator, the GE Carescape. We have some Hamilton ventilators that are ICU style ventilators. Um, then we have kind of the, the mid-level ventilators, the Ventec B Plus Pro, the um, Philips um, Evo 300. Um, and then we have ventilators that are far less capable, the pneumatic ventilators and ventilators that are really automatic resuscitators. So um, it's a little bit of a mess at the moment, but there are lots of ventilators. And I know USAID has sent a lot of ventilators or a number of ventilators to India, often sending the Zoll 731, which is a ventilator used by the US military, um, which is not a great ventilator as a, you know, in the ICU ventilator, but the, the characteristics it has that makes it so useful in the military is it's able to work in extreme environments. It uses very little oxygen, has its own built-in compressor. It can, includes a um, built-in pulse oximeter and you can kick it around on the, um, driveway and it'll still work. Um, but so there, there's a wide range and it's, it's really been an issue. And I hope as we go forward, um, again, what, one of the, we were just on Asha and I were just on another call this morning about these same problems. Um, people, people are the hardest things. PPE. I'm not sure that oxygen can ever really be stockpiled. Um, but maybe systems for oxygen stockpile, but they, you're talking about the PSA plants that can be delivered. You know, the U S military will fly in a PSA plant. That's larger than, you know, it's the size of the downstairs floor of your home. Um, and it will make oxygen and fill refill oxygen cylinders. Um, but, um, the stockpile is full of ventilators right now, but I, I think what we really need and Vikram was talking about this is we need people at the bedside doesn't matter how many ventilators you have if you don't have critical care people at the bedside. Um, and I know it's different in India, but, you know, here in the U.S., most physicians and for sure nurses aren't trained to use the ventilators, especially the complicated ventilators that we have. Um, so um, people are as important as equipment. And I mentioned this before, too. I, we were looking for every patient who's on a ventilator with, and Vikram, you can answer this probably better than me. For every patient who's on a ventilator for COVID-19, that same patient has five IV pumps or <laughs> seven IV pumps. If you, you know, again, if, if somebody had delivered to New York City 1 million ventilators a year ago today, it wouldn't have made a difference because, you know, it's, it, it's, more than, it's more than that. I know that sounds, as I said last time, it's like blasphemous for the respiratory therapist to say we don't need more ventilators, but it's more important to have skilled people at the bedside and a full suite of capability to care for those patients. That's, that's great, Richard. I mean, that's very meaningful what you've told us. Vikram, uh, what's your thoughts on this whole idea? Oh yeah, I couldn't agree with Richard more. And uh, you know, um, very similar to the US uh, and uh, uh, it lends itself to India as well. Uh, you know, funding and pandemic preparedness has been grossly overlooked for decades. And we saw the consequences of an unstructured, uncoordinated response here in the U.S. with close to 600,000 deaths here. And we're seeing a very similar response in India and in, in, in Italy, in NHS, in various other parts of the world. So if something good comes out of the pandemic, it should be a wake-up call that, you know, we need to invest in fire alarms. We shouldn't be investing in fire hoses, but more of fire alarms to stop this before it comes to a surge. And that's a much more complicated task to do. But uh, there, uh, thankfully, this might be a wake-up call for many, many countries across the world, because uh, as we very well know, 
pandemics no longer is go, are going to be a once in a century um, phenomena. As uh, it could be novel influenza, it could be a SARS, COVID three, MERS, what have you. But we need to wake up from this horror, knowing that pandemic preparedness, investment in disasters like this should be front and center of government budgets. That, that, that's, I mean, that's exactly what everyone's been saying. And we don't have too much time left, but I'm going to very briefly touch on the education part. So for example, in my hospital, we've been doing courses remotely for patient, uh, for doctors who are basic degree, MBBS or basic MD. And we're, we're training them. We've been doing it since last April, May. So several thousand uh, basic level doctors now actually know the basics of a ventilator. And I think CHEST has similar courses. And I'm going to throw it out to Steve as to saying that, hey, can we do something of that sort and partner with Indian institutions and ramp out the education because that might actually help. And I'm going to ask Richard, say, hey, if there's no respiratory therapist in India, there's a handful. Is there something that the respiratory care societies can figure out a way to rapidly educate in the next several weeks? So, you know, like a, Steve knows this, anytime I do a webinar, there has to be an outcome. And one of the questions I have is, can we partner in this education endeavor and do something? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so in point of fact, one of the webinars that I mentioned before was on basic ventilator management for people who aren't used to doing that. Uh, but I certainly think it's up for grabs, and I'm hoping that Dr. Maves, who leads our task force, may be on this call, um, that uh, there is certainly room for more. And if we can do more, and actually, you know, what probably would be of use to us, Sai, is if you could give us better understanding of the ventilators available in India, I'm sure there are many, 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 but what seems to be the market leaders, then we could aim at, at those directly. Absolutely. That, that sounds like a great idea. And Richard, what do you think about the RT engagement? Is there a possibility? Is that something you guys are already doing? So um, there's a number of things. So I, I, I usually complain about the ventilator manufacturers, and I still will in some cases, but they created the Ventilator Alliance which is a website which you can go to and every ventilator that's in the stockpile and others, there are little snippets of four minute segments usually of how to operate that ventilator, that individual ventilator. They did a really good job. CDC partnered with the American Association of Restorative Care to create some videos about the ventilators. So there are talks about um, how the ventilators work. There are talks about how to get the ventilators from the stockpile. And then there are individual um, talks about the ventilators that are not done by the manufacturers, but are done by bedside respiratory therapists saying, okay, now that you've seen the video, here are the things you need to understand. But I, I think, yeah, I think ACCP is the only people that I know of that have done, you know, kind of mechanical ventilation for non-intensivists. Um, and that, you know, of course, then there's the, the entire idea of, and, you know, again, Vikram, the, the New York experience, probably India is going to be the only other group that seems to have the New York experience of literally being just overwhelmed with sheer numbers of patients. But right. uh, that's sure. really good to know, Richard. So I'm, I think I'm going to, you know, circle back later. Okay after the webinar and see what we can actually do about this. So one question, I'm going to jump to some questions, and then there's only a couple more themes I want to touch on because there's limited time. Uh, Dr. Mukherjee wanted to know, can oxygen concentrators be a replacement for oxygen cylinders for domestic use in a COVID patient? 
any of you, Dr. Kuntrapal, you want to take that up, please? Uh, certainly, if they are available, uh, you know, oxygen concentrators can be replacement for oxygen cylinders. Um, again, you know, most of them are uh, don't need any oxygen or have mild respiratory failure. So I think it is a, definitely a, a possibility. So I did hear that some people were worried that there was no humidifier sometimes. Does it really matter? Is it possible? Any of you can answer this, that can you use these machines without the humidifier? Would that be a problem? The standard bubble, cold bubble humidifier, you know, humidity is a function of temperature. So if the gas coming out of the oxygen concentrator or a cylinder is cold, when it bubbles through the water, it's going to be colder. So the amount of humidity you get from a bubble humidifier is virtually negligible. Now, mm -hmm. again, you can't do high flow nasal cannula without heated humidity. If you do, you'll dry out the airway and the patients, they won't be able to tolerate it. It's just be too uncomfortable. But for two, three liters a minute, there's there have been studies that have been done. Um, one in chest a few years ago that Bruce Rubin is a co-author of. And I think the first author is um, Naomi Nakagawa, who's a physiotherapist from Brazil. And they showed that no, up to three liters a minute, no bubble humidifier versus a bubble humidifier. No, no difference in mucociliary transport of a sweetener from the nose into the back of the throat. It was very scientific, but it, sorry, this is, I'm giving you long-winded answer for <laughs> flows less than six liters a minute. The bubble, the cold bubble humidifier is useless. Can I add one more point to that? Uh, and that came from one of my patients <clears throat> and uh, they had a humidifier, um, and they needed higher um, liters per minute. And we finally figured out if they connect it to a CPAP machine, CPAP machine has an inbuilt humidifier. So it adds another layer. So basically those patients have an add-on to CPAP machine with the, with the humidifier attached to it. And that has worked uh, in that particular scenario. They didn't need the CPAP per se, but that yeah, was that's one. A, that's interesting. You could have a nasal cannula and then... Yeah use room air from the humidif from the CPAP machine to exactly. improve the humidity. That's a very clever idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's a good take home message. So uh, three more themes to touch on. First theme, the variants, uh, the uh, Vikram, what do you think? Have you, you know, you know there's going to be a lot of immigrants from India, travelers from India who come to New York city. There's large communities of them. Have you seen any variants from India? The B6.1.7. Have you seen any of those? What do you think? Uh, yes, so we have that in our community already. Um, when we are doing a fair amount of whole genome sequencing, looking for variants of concern, and uh, you know, as expected, natural history of the disease that these these viruses will mutate, and some of them will be unconcerning. Some of them will cause variants of concern. The B one six one seven is in New York City already. Um, thankfully, uh, at least in New York City, the vaccines seem to be very protective, if not in pre preventing infection, but at least in preventing infection that's severe enough to be hospitalized or ICU. So the vaccines are effective. Uh, my understanding is that the Indian vaccines are equally effective against these VOCs. But um, yes, there are the variants and uh, some are more transmissible than the rest. I don't know if the 1617 has the data behind it to show it's more transmissible, uh, but I'm sure it's in many, many places of the world, not just in India. Sure. And so I think uh, we were chatting a couple of days back in a similar webinar with through chests from doctors from Milan and Brazil, and it sounded like the variants are there. And they have costs or just it's, you know, theoretically, it looks like it's spreading more easily. The degree of illness, though, there's still, you know, conflict whether they're actually sicker or not. 
And is it just the magnitude of the volume of patients that we're seeing at once that is looking like it's more uh, infectious and the degree of illness is more severe? But almost everybody I've talked to has uh, agreed that vaccines have been protective. Uh, next quick question, Dr. Uh, Agarwal and Dr. Guntapali. Mucormycosis. There's a lot of questions that have been coming in from the audience about mucor, which, you know, the black fungus is what the news items are saying. Have you seen any of those? Do you have any theories on what could be doing it? I mean, I've heard about the humidifier water causing it and steroids and diabetics, et cetera. Do you guys have any comments on those two? I mean, we have not seen any mucormycosis uh, in uh, our all the patients that we have seen, a few hundred of them. Uh, my own, um, uh, this is my own guess is that indiscriminate use of uh, steroids and uh, immunosuppressants um, very early on, even at home, I've seen patients being given, uh, you know, steroids when patients are on room air. So I think uh, severe diabetes is another problem in India. You know, we have a very high prevalence of diabetes and uncontrolled diabetes. That's what I think is uh, causing this problem. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with Dr. Guntrapalli. Um, in my experience, I can add another layer to it. Uh, I'm also a sleep medicine physician, and we prescribe a lot of CPAP, BiPAP, which have humidifiers. And I would say, you know, I've been practicing for more than 10 years, and I have not seen even a single case of humidifier water-related mucormycosis. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot more to it, unless patients are, uh, you, know, you know, not using clean water, um, that is probably a less likely cause for it. Having said that, with COVID, the immunity tends to go down. And then if you add a layer, like Dr. G mentioned, uh, you know, steroids or diabetes, other causes of immunosuppression, that can lead to mucormycosis. I was actually talking to one of my friends who's an ophthalmologist, and they are seeing, uh, you know, they are seeing patients which are much more severe than what they are usually uh, seeing. So, there, this is something which perhaps need more research and uh, figuring yeah. out what, but at least in short yeah. term. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, so what we have seen in our own setup also is that the numbers are real. I know generally when you have a situation, there's a lot of hype going on, but when you talk to the doctors, they're busy in the OR. They're removing eyeballs and, you know, doing lots of plastic surgery type stuff. So I'm going to switch gears here. And by the way, there's questions in the uh, chat network, which uh, Mm -hmm. some of them are about timing of tracheostomy and the general principles I've seen for this pandemic now after 15 months of having it is do the same thing you always did. The evidence for ARDS, follow it. The evidence for infection control, follow it. There's no magic bullets. There is no need to create new techniques that you didn't do before. Oxygen, conserve it. Of course, we're looking for new drugs, new things coming through, and they will be looked at. But Steve, this is a question for you. You're a you know, global expert on sepsis. Have you seen anything in the literature or in your own experience in terms of sepsis you know, doing ARDS in COVID patients? Because in, anecdotally, I've seen many people end up with MDR infections and succumbing to you know, the septic shock and not from the COVID. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, thanks. I, that's a, it's a good question. There are two or three different ways to think about this. Number one, every severe COVID patient uh, actually is a sepsis patient. You have an infection, you have an organ dysfunction, by definition, you have sepsis. And so this clearly, the, and, and this people tend to believe this more when they see the multiple organ dysfunctions and the hypotension and the inflammatory syndrome and the so-called 
so-called cytokine storms, then people think sepsis, but all severe COVID actually is sepsis. The second way that, that sepsis intervenes here is in exactly the way that you were suggesting that prolonged ICU stays, prolonged hospitalizations result in secondary infections with all sorts of bacteria and fungus um, that, that lead to septic shock and mortality. Clearly the ARDS uh, response, we believe to be a host response, immune mediated, inflammatory mediated, that can occur to SARS-CoV-2 itself or can occur to the secondary bacterial infection. That's great. So, you know, we're almost towards the close of the webinar. We've kind of gone over the need to evaluate oxygen requirement, how to conserve oxygen. We talked about proning. We've talked briefly about how to manage sepsis and ARDS. We talked about staffing solutions, the need for education and upskilling people who are out there and reminding people on the basics. We even shared resources on the infographics we have. Uh, Richard shared information about the study about how to you know, conserve oxygen. It's very simple tweaking of the oxygen saturation. We talked about the proning study. We also mentioned the various chest resources already available out there. And, you know, the American College of Chest Physicians, I mean, one of the reasons I'm a member of it and I really enjoy being a part of it is there's two C's in it, ACCP or chest. And those C's, I think, stand for, you know, really stand for care and compassion. Without the care and compassion that comes through from us as physicians, you know, why did we become physicians or healthcare providers? Let's not forget that. And one of the reasons this webinar is happening in such short notice is the people off who belong to chats really care about illness everywhere. And I think I want to thank Steve and the organization for doing something like this and really caring for our members and everybody out there. And let's not forget the compassion required to handle the burnout that physicians are facing. I know physicians in the United States who have taken on turns to monitor patients in India in the, during the time that the physicians in India are taking a couple hours of a nap, and they've actually done this. I've been part of situations like that. I have been part of situations where social media-driven requests for help have been met by groups who have sourced out and really reached out for a concentrator and actually gotten a concentrator to a patient who needed it in real time. So the world is truly one, and ACCP and CHEST have done a great job at really you know, integrating and bringing it to the patient where really ultimately we're here for the patients. So I want to thank Chess for actually doing things like that. And, you know, in terms of uh, the web resource we talked about, and Kay, one question that came up is where would Americans or others watching this, where can they donate their concentrator or CPAP machines? Is there a way to reach out to a location? Should they reach to Chess or can they reach to, out to you to help out? Um, there is a, um, when you want to donate, uh, equipment. There is a uh, website that you just say you want to donate and you have to fill out a very short form of exactly what uh, equipment it is, what type it is and so on. And when you, when you return that form, uh, you will get a, um, a, a sort of a, a thing that you can put on your machine and just drop it off in any of the, uh, you know, FedEx offices uh, free of cost. So I can uh, provide that through chest and you can post it. Perfect. So that would be very good. Thank you so much, Kay. So we have kind of, it's almost uh, about six or seven more minutes left. If there's any burning questions people have, you can kind of throw it in the chat room. We have touched on most of the questions that have come through and they've been mostly about uh, managing patients. One question that somebody had was, how can I prevent the deaths that are happening in India? And I think the simple answer is you practice good medicine, 
follow the guidelines, don't overdo things. And yes, there are patients who need remdesivir. There will be patients who need tocilizumab, but the vast majority are getting better on their own. And let's not do things to impede their own wellness. Let's not impede their own immune systems from handling this. And that finesse is where you come in as a physician to really manage these patients and monitor them closely. Uh, I'm going to request each of you to give me like a 20, 30 second parting comments on what this whole thing is all about. The big picture of you and any specific advice you want to give our viewers in terms of what we can do next. I'm going to start with Dr. Agarwal. I would say for a pretty obvious thing uh, is if you are a healthcare provider, make sure you are vaccinated. And this seems like a very simple advice and probably most of the people are doing it. But I can tell you from our experience, our institutional experience, uh, and I'm in one of the COVID committees. Um, and since we have, we have achieved more than 80% uh, vaccination at our institution and the number of physicians and other healthcare providers who got infected was has gone down to almost none. So if you are not uh, vaccinated or your colleagues are not vaccinated, encourage them. If you're taking care of COVID patients, that is perhaps your protection you should keep in mind. Thank you, that's, a, that's great advice. Richard, what would you be your parting comments? Uh, I think things that have been repeated before and that's understand how your equipment works, be appreciative and careful with your staff and do the basic scientific evidence-based medicine for the care of the mechanically ventilated patient. Don't look for something that's not there. Treat the patients like you would normally treat the patients. Perhaps prone positioning more often if they're tolerated seems to be helpful. Um, nitric oxide in a few cases recently has seemed to be helpful. Um, but other than that, um, standard therapy for ARDS. Thank you. Vikram, what would you like to say? Uh, thanks, I, and I want to re-emphasize what you and Richard mentioned. I mean, it's to avoid pandemic exceptionalism. Um, this is uh, still a new disease, and there is an urge, of course, when you see thousands of people dying around you, to try more, to try steroids, to try plasma, to try TOSI. But as you can see, these have cons significant consequences. So I just want to emphasize, stick to the basics, please. Uh, get vaccinated uh, as soon as you possibly can, if you haven't already. But every intervention that you try especially the immunomodulators have a significant side effect to them. So please go, please think about that before you treat your patients with them. Thank you. Thank you, Vikram. Dr. Guntapali. Uh, I would say practice um, COVID safe behavior, um, both at home and at work. Um, second thing is the difference between uh, resource rich and resource poor situation is probably a week away. So even the hospitals like URSI that are tertiary and quaternary care, I mean, as you know, poor planning can result in, you know, in a very dire situation. Steve, any thoughts on big picture view and where to go forward? Big picture view, <clears throat> when I just put my email address here in the chat, uh, you are all who are on this, welcome to use it and contact me. I think the big picture view that I have is you are not in this alone in India. 
Um, we are all getting a taste of it or have had a taste of it, and we are all here to help. And that's what Chest is here for. If you have educational requests, shoot them to me, get them to us at Chest. And we have ways of addressing those, and we will address those. Um, and uh, I think that's the outside of that, as everyone else has said, take care of yourself, take care of your families wear your masks appropriately, get vaccinated when you have the opportunity and advise that for all of your patients. That's, that's wonderful. So we've kind of gone through the gamut of caring for patients. And I think uh, the take home messages are very practical. You can you know, apply them right away. And then we're just going to close by a couple of things I like to generally end with. And one of them is never stop learning because life never stops teaching. And in the last few months of the pandemic, we've really learned not just medicine, but really about our humanity and how everything is interrelated, not just in terms of the spread of disease, but also the spread of hope and the spread of health. And I think it's important for us to recognize that there are people out there you can reach out to for help in your own communities. We do have mental health experts in India who are actually helping out, especially people, not just physicians, but patients who have gone through loss. And you know, there's families who have been affected where some members are not there anymore. And I think those situations are unheard of in such a rapid phase. And those stands of help are also available. And I think the, the, the primum non nocere, which you know, really help ever hurt never, I think that should be our applicable mantra to really practice uh, COVID safe medicine in the future. And I'm hoping that CHEST will continue to support us. And CHEST has uh, really been great for people from India. We've uh, all grown in this organization quite well. And the maximum number of members internationally are from India. And I'm hoping that more people participate. And there's a lot of avenues you can actually help out with CHEST. There are networks you can be a part of. Uh, you can get in touch with experts like Steve and Dr. Guntapali and Richard and Dr. Agarwal and Dr. Vikram, and you can reach them, you know, with an email or a communication. And the, the community aspect of chest is something that's really, really helpful for a lot of people. So I'm going to close with that. And thank you all, everyone, again, for this wonderful uh, webinar. And I'm hoping that the next time we meet, it'll be in better circumstances and we can talk about how do we improve healthcare for the world. Thank you all for attending and it's dinner time in India. Enjoy your dinner. Sai, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.